The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Return the Jewels. Also, there's explicit language. Hey everyone, welcome to our 18th episode. Um, now I say that uh, this is a really special one every time, but this one really is a special one. Uh, I have an old, like an old friend. I mean, we're the same age and we're not old, 30, 30s, uh, but an old friend from college. Uh, and, you know, I, I reached out to her and she agreed to come on. And, uh, you know, we happen to be in a pandemic and she is actually a, a pulmonary and critical care fellow. She got her fellowship in Tulane in med school or after med school. She did a residency and then a fellowship. And now she's an assistant professor of medicine uh, back in our hometown where she went to med school, um, the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And so, um, so this is my friend from college. Uh, her name is Leika Sunkara Deer, and you'll see in the beginning about the name pronunciation thing. Uh, but a friend from college, so we, you know, we, it was kind of this episode's really just kind of us reconnecting because uh, we hadn't really talked in I want to say like six, seven years, maybe. Um, it's been a while, and. You know, I, I I wanted to I wanted to really get uh, I, I wanted to really get like a physician on here. I know because on the episode with Nimesh, we talked about our family members that are um, you know physicians and what they're going through. So you know, I was lucky enough to get Leica to sit down for about an hour and a half, uh, and you'll see that like um, during the interview, my power went out. A couple of times it was like a whole thing they were working on the building and um so it kind of got cut short but the interview itself is still lengthy but um you know we talked about a lot of stuff you know Leica's a new mother she's got a daughter who's three years old but uh you know she she delivered her uh she gave birth when she started her fellowship so, you know, we talked about the insane work-life balance that she had to develop and really had to adapt to. And she gives some tips, you know, uh, especially about like, um, we talked about, you know, being uh, a, a small woman that has to um, command a lot of influence and authority in whatever space, spaces she navigates and like different little mental tricks. Uh, we didn't talk about it on the episode before, but the the term the terminology is psychological size, psychological sizing, and so you know we kind of talked about that. We talked about uh, you know our education in Mississippi, you know diversity. Uh, we did a tokenizer fetishize segment. She had such a it's a pretty emotional story. She kind of dropped a pretty emotional story on the tokenized fetishized one, uh, which is something we haven't really had in all these episodes up to now. And, um, you know, you'll see why. Uh, hmm, I don't know. Just basically, oh, big thing, uh, you know, I asked her about the vaccine. 
and uh, you know, had her talk to us about the vaccine, dispelled fears about it. Uh, you know, she gave her spiel. I don't know whoever's listening, however you feel about it. Obviously, I'm pro vaccine, and you know, I'm talking to a doctor, a physician that does pulmonary care, which is lung stuff, and the critical care, meaning she is in the ICU uh, with people on the brink of death or dying from COVID itself for the last year. So it's like, she's been on the front lines in New Orleans too, at the time, right at Mardi Gras during the outbreak and when it was all becoming a thing. So, you know, take it from her uh, if you're gonna, however you feel about it, but I'm getting into a tangent and I'm spending too much time on this intro. Leka Sunkara Deer, very close, a dear friend of mine um, from a while back. And, and you know, it's a good interview. Um, she's, a, she's a doctor and a teacher in med school of medicine. So um, this is a good one. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut this off. Enjoy. So I met you, I met you at Millsaps. And this is like, I was 18 and the only Indian friends I had up to that point were my cousins. <laughs> <laughs> and so I remember uh, like we met and it was with a few other brown kids and uh, it was just like mind blowing. And so it's like, we had to be friends even though I know that we had very, we, <laughs> we are very different now, <laughs> but we were also very, very different then. And so, um, yeah, I think that's how we met. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, uh, like a, it's like a responsibility to befriend the other only other Indian kids on campus. I mean, if you think about it, right? I so you do. You went to the the math and science school, so you probably had you had a little more diversity than I did, I think. But that was only at the end of high school, right? That was only in the last. Yeah, it's like junior and senior year where we yeah. were suddenly independent at that age. <laughs> Yeah, but it's like it's like a primer for college. But even before then, so before then, you went to. I went to Madison Central. Oh, okay. Ridgeland High School. Okay, yeah, All Madison. Public. So that was a little bit of diversity there too. So not like a, but not really. <laughs> still <No>. very much. <laughs> not really. Very much a white space. Mm -hmm. And uh, the college we went to was still very much a white space. It was a small liberal arts college in Millsaps. By the way, the reason I'm talking like this is because I had press record like a couple minutes ago. <laughs> so, oh, really? Okay. Cool. <laughs> but not like, not like more than a couple minutes ago, just a couple minutes. Ago. <laughs> and uh, so I'm here with my good, really uh, old friend. Not like she's not old. We're the same age. Uh, well, I guess we're old. But old um, what? Old has two meanings here. Old has two meanings here, right. So yeah, uh, my double meaning old friend, Leka Sunkara Deer, and uh, MD. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, I wanted to, oh, first of all, did I say your name right? Leka Sunkara Deer, did I say it right? Yeah, well, Sunkara. Sunkara, okay. You're probably the only person I corrected in my entire life. I'm like 33 years old. What do you mean? I'm the only person you corrected on it? Yeah. Because I, just I asked? Yeah. Wow. Okay. See, so 
I try to ask at the beginning of every episode, uh, really, and just to uh, see, because it's like, there's this thing where we kind of, we pre-coddle or pre-contextualize by anglicizing our own names mm -hmm. to make them palatable, as opposed to like stepping into like, no, here's the way it's pronounced. And I expect you to pronounce it the same way. Oh, yeah. As opposed to, it's like, no, just call me Love Agrawal. And which I've been saying forever instead of Agrawal, yeah. right? Because Agrawal, because I have a G-R-A, even though it's spelled, even though it's pronounced Gur, right? It's like, oh, yeah. well, that won't make sense. It'll be too difficult for them yeah. to say. Let me just spell, let me just say it phonetically. Obviously, they'll still fuck it up. But I, <laughs> I said it. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't fight it anymore. Or I don't think I ever did, honestly. Sunkara. Sunkara. Right, but I was saying Sunkara. Yeah. Right, and that's the common. Is that the that, is that what you always get? Yeah, Sunkara. Sunkara. The emphasis is on the wrong syllable. So, when did that did that ever become an issue? No. No. Did you ever feel a certain way about it, like? Growing I think up? I think so until until that fire burned out a long long time ago. But you know you just want to be authentic, especially when um, you move from your home country. I just wanted some part of me to stay authentic. But you know, after a while, you don't correct people. So you moved from Hyderabad mm -hmm. nine years old. Is that right? You were ten. I was nineteen ninety six. Yeah, I think I was almost yeah. ten years old. Yeah, yeah. Well, look at me remembering that. How do you know that? Because we talked about it like 12 years ago, 14, yeah, I 14 no years ago. <laughs> I don't know. I've, I have a little random. So if I'm ever quizzed on when you moved here, I will know that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, no, so you moved here at nine to Mississippi. Yeah, to Mississippi. To Mississippi. Okay. And then you immediately have to plug in nine. What is that? Like fourth grade? Yeah. Fifth, fourth, fourth grade. grade. So you plug into fourth grade and it's Sunkara. Oh yeah. Lekka? Is it Lekka? Yeah. Lakia. Lakia. Lika. Lika was most common. Lika. Lika's kind of cool though. No. No, it's <laughs> <laughs> I'm messing with you. Okay. So what about now let's use this to transition. Um let me say, and I'm, and I'm sure I've said this in the intro. Well, the intro is not recorded yet, but when I record it, I'll say it. Uh, so Leica is an MD, pulmonary and critical care fellow from Tulane. She, she finished her fellowship this year, and now she is a professor of medicine uh, at UMMC. What am I missing? Yeah. So yeah, I graduated fellowship at Tulane and now I'm an assistant professor. And now she has a gaggle of students, uh, including uh, interns, residents, other fellows, fellows, and probably other department people. Medical and so how many of them call you Lika? Uh, no one calls me Lika. They call me Dr. Deer. <laughs> Dr. Deer. <laughs> <laughs> And they never mess up the deer part. No, no. <laughs> Is it deer? <laughs> oh, 
Oh, no, that's great. Uh, no, I just needed to get that information out so we could move on in the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, no, so you move from you. So you move from Hyderabad at nine. You had to plug in, right? So all this culture clash and everything. Uh, I met you at eighteen. So you had about nine years of normalization, normalization at that point, uh, or assimilation, or adaptation, whatever you call it, at that point. And as far as I knew, right? You know, I thought you were like me, born here and all this stuff. Until you told me you weren't. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just thinking that, like, I, you know, in our conversations and in our friendship and all, that whole part of you, that one half of your life, by the point I'd met you, was kind of discounted, right? We never had to really talk about it or think okay. about it because it's more about, like, how do you talk now? You know, what are your experiences and point of references now so that you can be in the conversation with us about these American references? We don't need to know your experience from before. Yeah. Right. Does it feel did it feel like that a lot in Mississippi? Yeah. 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 And then I know after college, you went to med school in Mississippi. Yeah, I did. So what was what was that like? Was it more of an extension of our Millsaps life or it was yeah, much more of an extension of the Millsaps life. It's you know, not much more diverse, although they're working on that. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you're one of their professors, of course they're working on that. <laughs> and you know, I have you here to talk about these kind of issues in a long form, comfortable way. So, you know, every little bit pushes that needle forward. You know, um, yeah, no, they're working on how, uh, is this a weird question to ask? Like how, how diverse or no, okay, no I don't want to say how diverse, how like comfortable do you feel with your um, class of peers, other professors and all in terms of like moving towards diversity in terms of not having really regressive attitudes? I think it's gotten so much better. At least I think the circle that I work in has changed. I'm no longer a student. Yeah. Academics, these teaching hospitals are naturally a diverse place. And physicians come from all over the world, you yeah. know, foreign graduates. So actually, you know, on a professor level, it's extremely diverse, extremely diverse mindsets. And it's a lot of fun. I like this much more. That's good. That's good. And, you know, you... I don't know if you ever grew up like with, or maybe it's part of the conditioning because we both have similar environments in which we grew up where you feel like, you start to feel like you have a responsibility for not creating the kind of environment that limited your own exposure growing up, right? right. So like an example of our, limited exposure growing up right we're at this small school Millsaps and um you and I were part of a small committee that started this uh thing can you tell us about it uh, <laughs> yeah um yeah it was a what was this out I don't even know what it was the title for it but it was called Millsaps Masala that was me I call it Millsaps I said Millsaps is that you I thought that it was, was totally me that was totally me what was it Neha but no, either. it was it was totally me. 
It was, wow. that was absolutely me. And that was my wow. one contribution. And then I checked out until it was time to perform at the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mills House Masala, um, named by, by you. It was, it <laughs> no, was suggested a- by me as a throwaway and then picked up like 30 minutes later in the conversation. And then I said, oh, this is my idea. I took it up. Um, yeah, it was like a group for South Asians, I suppose. Um, yeah. I mean, we had no sense of representation or anything like that. You know, no, I didn't. We created it as best we could. I think I think Millsaps had a history of, you know, Indian kids, brown kids doing cultural events and doing those things, but it was never organized. Right. And uh, I think we made that happen. I'm not even sure if that's still a thing or did it dissolve at this point a decade later. I don't but... know. <laughs> Which brings me to my next topic, the brain drain. <laughs> no, but that's a that's a big thing in rural communities. The brain drain, how, you know, people of uh, different ethnicities or mar- from marginalized groups and have higher education, they leave. They leave the towns they grew up in. They leave the cities that they were educated in in order yeah. to find better opportunities because the environments that they are growing up in are just so like constrained by kind of like regressive politics or regressive ideas. And, um, you know, for you, you did med school in uh, New Orleans. And so uh, we were talking before this. And you said that was like one of the best times, uh, best cities yeah. you've lived in. Uh, you know, I've only visited a couple of times, but I've always loved it. Really? Yeah, no, I did med school here in, in Mississippi. But yeah, I went to um, a residency in internal medicine and then stayed there for fellowship um, in New Orleans. And some of the best six years of my life, I would say, in the recent memory. Um, just because it was more diverse. People were more outspoken about things that wouldn't have been if they were in Mississippi or grew up here, just more comfortable saying things out loud. It's such a simple thing, but it made such a big difference. It's like the, um, it's like a proxy stop for the brain drain from Mississippi. Yeah. You know, and so, so you do see a lot of your friends uh, when you go, when you move to New Orleans from Mississippi, uh, because they all didn't want to live in Mississippi anymore either. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but now you're back. Now you're back and now you're causing change. Did, um, now do you do things or do you plan to do things in terms of like community outreach or things for the representation? See, now you are in a position of influence and authority, even if you probably, since, you know, we're both young, I said we were old earlier, but we're both young, especially in terms of your career, you, you ha- you're very young in terms of your position. So do you, uh, you probably have a really bad imposter syndrome, but do you have any like plans for spearheading any sort of like diversity initiatives or any sort of like community outreach stuff or anything? Cause I mean, uh, you know, you're a fellow, you're a fellow, you're a professor, you do lung, lung work. And this is, you're in a rural community of people with poor health. Yeah, and uh, probably very underserved populations of color. So, like, have you thought about doing yeah. any like? Yeah, no, it's always it's always there in my mind, and more, you know, as far as community outreach and things like that, I haven't gotten to that yet. You know, I just started this job, but more in a personal in my clinical practice, and uh, lung cancer is a big topic for me. It's very important to me. Yeah, it kills the most people in, in America and worldwide. So, and 
we know that minorities are disproportionately affected by it. People, you know, if you're black, you're more likely to die from lung cancer than your white counterpart for a multitude of reasons. And that's really important to me. Um, and so, yeah, as far as very specific things, I'm already working in that um, lung cancer screening, those things, making that stuff better um, to make it more inclusive. Because right now, all these guidelines that apply, you know, what guidelines to use, who to screen for lung cancer, things like that, was studied mostly in white people. The biggest trial that came out that why we do CT scans for, to look for lung cancer, only 4% of the population was black. So we're applying these guidelines when we didn't even study the populations that are most likely to be affected by this disease. Um, so, yeah, it's a hot topic for me. It makes me angry. Um, is, that, um, is that why, like, and I've been, I just, I don't know much about this. Maybe you can shed some light on this. Yeah. But is that why within medicine and within, like, doctor communities, there is a misjudging of, like, pain? and pain tolerance for like, and, and the way it's skewed, like uh, black women's, especially their yeah. pain is missed out, like their pain tolerance is misjudged to be a very high threshold. And that really, um, that uh, influences the decision-making on an institutional level for a lot of med uh, medical and healthcare providers. So yeah, I think more of as a, as a bias issue, there is this perception that, you know, someone who appears to be from a low socioeconomic class, black people um, are more likely to exaggerate their pain and are perceived in that way and more likely to be labeled as seeking for pain medications when they come through the ER. And it's, it's not talked about, I mean, I think we talk about it a lot, but not much done about it, but everyone has this bias. I mean, you could say you don't, you could say that you treat everyone's pain equally, but you're not even conscious of this bias. So this unconscious bias that this, you know, this black woman comes in with pain and someone else who looks affluent and white and educated, their pain may be perceived more seriously and, you know, taken more seriously. It's, it's so pervasive, it's everywhere. And it's super sad. Yeah, no, I mean, it is. How do you fix it? Oh man, that is such a big question. I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think a lot of it's already being done to what effect I'm not sure in medical school training, um, you know, cultural sensitivity training, um, learning about bias and, you know, privilege, things like that. But I don't know. I think it's going to take a long time. I don't think this is something we can fix. It's, you know, it's human nature at this point. Um, right away but i think starting with medical school and specifically i'm talking about physicians who have this bias because ultimately we're the ones who prescribe the medication come up with a treatment plan yeah and the bias is so inherently entrenched in your discretion that separating it out trying to codify it or put it on some sort of rubric to prevent it from happening is kind of a daunting task but i think it could probably be done yeah. You know, so it's yeah, not, so focus on the training in medical school. That's. Yeah, I mean, it should be even earlier. I mean, you know, when we are learning basic science stuff in middle school, high school, things like this, this should be way earlier before professional school, I think. I just don't know where it should start. Obviously, the right answer is in your homes, parents, whoever's raising you. 
but you know as far as physicians yeah at the, at the point they come to us it says medical students so i think that's where they should start and that's already happening um and hopefully it's effective yeah because i guess that kind of um dismissal of people's pain or pain tolerance from a bias comes from um otherizing <clears throat> or being comfortable with otherizing people growing up so yeah maybe the way to combat it is to combat the otherization itself when you're a kid yeah and not and and if you're a parent to expose your children to more diversity <laughs> or i guess so it's like they kind of grow up thinking that people with darker skin are people yeah that would make sense yeah <laughs> i mean all those shows done for the kids i thought were friends in elementary school when i first moved to this country you know like wouldn't have you know the experiences i had no kid should have those experiences there's bullying which is normal it's a part of being a kid but what we you know i'm not sure what your experiences were but what i experienced should not ever happen and hope it doesn't happen to my own kid and you are a mom you're a power mom we established this before uh leka is uh, leka has a beautiful young three-year-old daughter yeah. that you were pregnant during your last year of fellowship residency mm -hmm. resident uh, residency sorry residency and you raised her to the three years the last three years have been in your fellowship so yeah. what is that like an 80 to 120 hour a week 80 to 110 hour a week commitment <laughs> at least 80 hours at work and then the real work started when i got home oh my god and yeah and like you know i know um just by proxy from my own siblings and, and the, you know their kids are very young and so at all different stages at that early age it's a lot oh, <laughs> it's gosh, a lot yeah. a lot how do you so in case we do have the one working mother listening because we've got like five listeners um <laughs> how do you suggest a sort of work-life balance because objectively you okay let me list this out you're in a fellowship where you're doing ICU care, lung work, and you're raising a zero-year-old daughter at this <laughs> So already, without the career or whatever, you don't get any sleep with that one task. And, uh, you know, you're still, you're living in the city, so you got your basic needs and all the stuff you have to take care of, your scheduling and everything. So what are some things that you could suggest to somebody who is probably working in a career and she just had a child and uh, it's one of those moments in her career where she can't step away? Right. There's no such thing as maternity leave. I don't think you had such a thing as maternity leave from fellowship. No. Um, yeah, they, they do have parental leave and in, in training, actually. And I got about six weeks of it. Really? Was it? Yeah. Enough? It's, I don't know. It's nowhere near enough. But <laughs> nowhere near enough. That's 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 our country with, with leave right now. But that's like a huge progression from the last few years. Right. Isn't that like a hard fought six weeks? 
or hard fought for six weeks? I don't know the history of it, but I'm pretty sure, yeah, there weren't any guarantees for parental leave yeah. until very recently in medical, um, in the medical field. Like I know my aunt who was a resident here in the eighties, I think she went back to work like two weeks postpartum while her daughter was still in the NICU. So I don't think there was any such thing back in her day. I don't know when we earned this. I mean, I can't even remember for, I'm trying to remember for my sister, like she was, she was pregnant during the last year of her fellowship up here. Mm -hmm. I don't remember her having time off. She may not have. If she was yeah, practicing really... independently, you know, um, at that point. Um, but yeah, and then in, in, in medical training now, there is parental leave, and those were things that were. Um, is it stigmatized? Are you, were you stigmatized after taking the leave in your very hyper competitive program when coming back? No, I don't, at least not openly to my face, but, you know, even I've been guilty of this. If someone is out for whatever reason, especially parental leave, which is weeks and weeks, sometimes months. Um, you know, the other people left behind pick up your slack and cover your yeah. services. So I think there's resentment and it's definitely gotten a lot better from what I hear um, as far as people being encouraged or even, you know, to have kids while training. Um, but not to my face. I think I think where I trained, it was, very common to have kids during training. But did you, did you ever sense a kind, that kind of resentment or do you think it manifested in how you were treated subsequently or could you see a difference in treatment towards you? You know, I don't think I did, but again, I personally was guilty of being resentful of other people who yeah. took prolonged maternity leave and me being a mom should not have been, but I was. And that's medical training. It's so intense that you're jealous of whatever time you have for yourself, um, you know, and being asked to pick up the slack, which is a lot of work taking care of patients in underserved city like New Orleans and what we were doing in training. It's, it's you know, people don't do it with a, with a smile on their face. Well, okay, I want to do this segment before we get to the main topic, but this was a perfect transition to the main topic, but I really want to do this segment. Um, so I told you about it before, but this segment is called Tokenized or Fetishized. Mm -hmm. And so I want you to give me like an anecdote and maybe you could pick something from when we were both in college together where you were either tokenized, not that you have to, pick a pick a moment from then because i'm sure you have a lot of stories but a story where you were either tokenized or fetishized and maybe explain to us what that means or if there's a difference or what the difference may be or if i'm pulling this question out of my ass <laughs> there's definitely a difference uh between being tokenized and fetishized I, I don't know how what the formal definitions are but for example um yeah. like you know how um, yeah, contextualized through your story, I guess. Right. I mean, when or, or men when they when they see an exotic woman, that's fetishizing. I feel like you know, to date someone who's of Indian origin may be a fetish in a way, and being tokenized and tokenized. You know, I think both of us have had this experience being the the Indian friend in the group. Um, but I, what's unique about Indian people, I think, at least I think, is that we often self 
tokenize. Mm-hmm. Um, we've developed, we're almost masters at self-deprecation and making being Indian funny for whatever reason. I don't know how this developed um, with the aim to be more acceptable, I guess, to make ourselves more acceptable. Yeah, palatability won out over identity. Right, and somewhere along the way, authenticity was just lost. I don't know how, but yeah, for example, when I was- <laughs> but the authenticity is coming back with white women in the Ayurvedic movement. <laughs> yoga, um, gosh, I could go on. You're so right. But, you know, in, in elementary school, I remember, you know, when, when the girls I hung out with realized that I was from another culture, they, you know, they wanted to have a sleepover and try on my Indian clothes and take photos, like have a photo shoot. Elementary school, so like third, fourth, fourth, fifth grade? It was like fifth grade, I think. Okay. Um, And I have photos of me like looking so uncomfortable with these girls around me in my Indian clothes, just taking photos for a sleepover. And I was like, this is so weird. You know, how, why did I allow this? Um, Why did I allow this? And it was like before Instagram, before any of that culture, before selfies. Yeah, and it's like, you know, was it appreciation or was it like, wow, this is so weird. Look at our weird friend. I want to try on her strange, crazy I bet clothes. she's got a whole closet full of costumes for us. Costumes, yeah, <laughs> Indian costume. Um, or yeah, and like, oh, my Indian friend is getting married. Can I borrow one of your costumes? I'm like, you know, it's a costume. It's, uh, it's, it's clothes, it's the clothes we wear. I mean, it's not something you, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's one of those things is like you have to be okay with that kind of um, reductionist framing. And I don't know why you have to be okay with it, but it's easier to just roll with the bunches. Uh, You know, an analogy I have is like when I talk to my friends who are into like, here's the thing I didn't know, like sneaker culture is a big it's a big thing when people get and jackets and in like nice like clothes like fancy people do that right and so I, you know i talk to my friends about that sometimes and i call it's like oh yeah you you guys are so good at fashion right this is like you you're so fashionable and and saying that word fashion in uh-huh. itself is somehow stigmatizing uh-huh. because it's like no it's not don't call it fashion don't call it don't call it no it's not fashion this is a, but it's like but that's fashion isn't that right oh, yeah. and so it's like saying saying something like yeah you know your uh your your formal native stuff is a costume right? yeah so it's like uh um that kind of thing just seeing the response from my friends about the sneaker stuff calling it fashion is uh aggressive confrontational the response yeah. that we give for costumes uh, oh look at all the pretty colors yeah indian weddings i want an indian wedding themed birthday party you know because yeah. of all the colors and it's like we just like roll with it it's like yeah yeah you we do we we got yeah. a lot of colors hey yeah. have you guys checked out holy <laughs> <laughs> or check out these other things that we have with all these colors take them they're all yours yeah. <laughs> like, oh my gosh we do it to ourselves um i don't know what it is i think especially i see this in south indians a lot too it's just like being so self-deprecating and, and just making fun of yourself. Um, I don't know where we developed that skill along the generations. Probably when we Even let the British in. Shit out of the, the British. <laughs> when we let the British in at the place called India Gate, not India Fort. 
Probably back then. Yeah. 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 Now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> it's like, oh, if we're self, people say British. The British have the best self-deprecating humor, but they probably got it from the Indians. It's another thing. I was just having this conversation with my husband, like, who did it first? Did we give it to them? Because, uh, you know, or I hate to say it, they gave us anything, but they did. They were they were probably beating some Indian dude with a stick smothered in big lard, and he laughed at just the cosmic irony of it all. And they're like, huh, interesting. They can laugh out of pain. Let's massacre a few of them. <laughs> and see and see if they're cool with it <laughs> and we yeah, were <laughs> yeah, it worked what a dark origin it but worked yeah. and then they got to have uh john oliver <laughs> and all those generations of pain produced john oliver all these generations of pain produced john oliver that's um and he is john oliver is the greatest accomplishment for india <laughs> <laughs> He, only, he, he, he slightly makes up for Winston Churchill. <laughs> yeah. In our environments we grew up in, Churchill was idolized. Dude, yeah, that backwards, the backwards shit that Indian people do. It's, it's so, I don't know. It makes no sense sometimes. I understand it on a certain level. We're so pragmatic that we've just adopted this stuff just to make it. I feel, for example, why are there so many Indians in Mississippi where we're not treated with much respect? I unless... think that's my family. <laughs> it's all your family, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think like my uncle was like the anchor uncle. <laughs> the anchor <laughs> no, like, uncle. For real, for real. Like Sponsored 50 pieces. Yeah. yeah, like way back in the 70s. And then we just have like, like my whole... Like even even my you know moms all their siblings they gravitated to Mississippi way back decades ago because of my anchor uncle and then like uh, you know they sponsored like for work a lot of other people immigrating yeah. in the visas and stuff it's like why Mississippi it's like a hub <laughs> yeah it's like well Mississippi because I was able to be an exotic doctor in a small town and make a lot of money and just like. Uh, you can make a lot of money if you laugh at your own culture. Yeah. You know, because then they just let you work. Yeah. You get to work. <laughs> Cost of living is low. Man, we're very pragmatic. And, you know, I was talking about this the other day. The most beautiful nature and scenery in this country and the stuff that inspires the American rugged individualism and dream, the landscapes, all in racist towns. Racist people have control of all the most beautiful places in this country. Mississippi is quite beautiful. It really is. And uh, there's not much pollution. Although, well, I mean, uh, other than, well, never mind. But, but <laughs> there's not much pollution in the aggregate. Yeah. <laughs> so you still have clean skies and stuff like that. But yeah, like, we're very pragmatic. And I think that that lends itself to a um, not just an individual, but a collective protectionism, self-protectionism, self-segregation. You know, like like where are you really from? Well, I don't want to give you a fucking inch if you ask yeah. me that, right? I'm just gonna keep saying Mississippi until yeah. you tell me that that's impossible, and then I ask you why that's impossible, yeah. right? I'm gonna antagonize you, right? So there's a self 
self-defense, self-segregation, self-protectionism that I feel is a very common element, like with you and me right now. You're feeling when those girls are taking pictures with all your costumes that are just your regular ass clothes, right? You're thinking, oh shit, I opened the door. I didn't know better. And now I'm gonna spend years closing that door, stunting my development. (laughs) <laughs> because of this one thing yeah um big time speaking of stunted development now here's the thing that i was pussyfooting around and didn't really uh but i think we should talk about it um so speaking of stunted development and i talked about this on a previous episode with uh my friend who's a comedian who has a lot of family that are doctors and healthcare workers yeah you are a fellow at Tulane at the beginning of this year right last year of your fellowship you are doing ICU care and lung care right lung you're bringing people back from the brink of death and this pandemic hits and we learn it's a lung like it's a lung issue. It, it fucks up your lungs or your respiratory system. And um, you're learning that in real time because your information about this thing is constrained politically or whatever. And all you see are patients, 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 influx. You're, you're wearing garbage bags, I bet. Same mask for weeks, all this stuff, I'm sure the PPE was getting, uh, wasn't being funneled to your hospital and stuff like that. And there's all sorts of different games Well, you're seeing all of this mortality. And one thing that in all the pandemic discussions we've had for the last year or so, not you and I personally, but just as a globally, um, nobody's talking about the potential effect that that Uh, aggregating trauma might have on you know our generation of people that are working in the healthcare industry right and so you see so much trauma it's compounded right before you were essentially getting into your real independent uh standalone world even though as a resident and a fellow, you're still in. You're still a doctor. You're working. You're you're titled, but like now, you know, you have your nameplate, your office, yeah. And and um, you are making your own moves. You're an independent actor. But right before that, you have this unprecedented global catastrophe that you were just seeing bodies, and did that fuck you up? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's fucked up. All of this is fucked up. What do you... Do you feel like there's been a shift in your mentality or your general perspective since from before the pandemic to now? Because you've been in the front lines. You're seeing something that people are not really being shown. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was... 
nuts. I mean, you know, being a pulmonary critical care fellow where you staying up to date and you were getting these reports of this, this virus outbreak in the East and you're like, oh, that's kind of scary. All right, move on. And then Mardi Gras happened. You know, I was training in New Orleans mm. and shit blew up right after that. And you're still a trainee. I mean, it was my last year, almost independent. You know, we've never experienced a pandemic. What do you do? We don't have enough doctors. Uh, New Orleans was ground zero there for a while. It yeah. got out of control. I've never seen such rapid death. I mean, just like you said, bodies. Some of it didn't even make sense. Pronouncing a 28-year-old guy who has no medical history calling his parents and having to tell them that their kid is dead. I mean, it just didn't make sense. Why did he die? Why did this 90-something-year-old who got it walk out of here? And why did this 28-year-old guy die? It doesn't make any sense. Never learned anything about this. Um, and it was just the helplessness. And then you add the compounded fear of taking it home to your three-year-old daughter and your older mother-in-law who lives with us to help us because my husband's um was a fellow too in cardiology so we're both working 80 plus hours a week and not seeing our family so i was it was just unreal i was like should i be writing out an advanced directive if something happens to me if i you know contract this virus i need to make plans what if my daughter is orphaned or you know like you know things like that i didn't know um here we are almost a year later though yeah but you your sense of fatality has become much more grounded and real there's no real like delusion anymore of i'm young i'm gonna live forever or that every risk is a fatal risk and how maybe that has affected not just you personally but your peers and how it's influenced their like micro actions, you know, in general, Uh, how has it influenced your micro actions in general, how you move and operate and, you know, navigate, I guess, your own career in life. Yeah. Schedule. Like, what do you, I mean, everything in the last year has been COVID pneumonia and everything COVID. I'm, I'm wondering like, how, how, what is my practice going to look like when this dies down, if it dies down, which I, I think there's hope that it's about to, but, you know, am I going to remember how to take care of the run the mill <laughs> critical care diagnoses? Um, it's all going to be COVID. I'm just going to, you know, there's this panic, like there's just panic underlying everything I do now. Um, it's going to take a long time to recover from, from the, just the mass amount of death I've seen, I think. Um, and, and going to a party, no matter when this pandemic dies, is never going to feel the same. Never. Never going to feel the same. And you have a, so you have a three-year-old daughter. And so, you know, she's coming up into, in a few years, into her like really formative years, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of like perception and, and yeah. I guess what her general philosophy may become on life and uh, you are the knowledge the wisdom the experiences the advice anything that you impart onto her is now coming through this filter of having seen so much drama you know and all of this so what do you think 
that that might be like, what do you think the influence of all this drama may have on how you start to uh, impart caution and wisdom to your daughter? That's such a good, that's such a good question. Um, and it's, it's occurred to me, like, you know, finally, that, you know, what if, what if I'm causing anxiety in her, and I'm not even aware, she's gonna develop anxiety. It's a, it's yeah. a disorder. And because her, you know, everything has been in a panicked way, I'll make sure she wears her mask, if we go to the park, you know, she can't just go to the park. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, her whole experience at the park is marred by me just looking at her, you know, with hawk eyes, making sure her mask is on, never fully being able to relax, letting her just be a kid. And um, it's just, I don't know. I don't know what effect it's going to have on her and how, how I can ease up and, and be normal once again. Yeah, especially with all the apprehensiveness and everything you do have to um really consider her ability to independently build her confidence because yeah. your your experiences like we were talking about earlier in the interview growing up you know no little girl should have to you know go through having her a whole bunch of this group of people that just want to use her for her costumes you know <laughs> so this this little girl will you know know to be very cautious medically and be very apprehensive about things but how will that affect her confidence in risk taking you know in her own like i mean she's only three so you know who let's see where you know the the world goes and what the general sense is in terms of like the kids the new generation yeah. But like you I'm sure you think about like her confidence building and stuff just generally as a minority right having to having to like I know that uh my superpower that I had to develop was faking confidence right that's the only way to combat the imposter syndrome yeah the self-deprecation you fake the confidence until it's real but it's never real but you fake you can fake it enough and convince people it's real so with her, what kind of confidence building tools do you uh, feel like, or have you been thinking about that you can possibly impart on her? Right. Um, you know, this stuff you just make up as you go and, you know, being a parent is so nebulous, especially when they're young. But I feel like the only thing I have been able to control is what she's read to, what books I'm yeah. reading to her, what we're reading to her. So choosing these books, for example, we got this great, bedtime book recently it's about construction trucks or whatever but every construction truck was a he mm. and i was like you know that doesn't make any sense so I, I picked one of them the bulldozer and i changed it to she and so every time i read the bulldozer page it's she and i'm almost considering reviewing all the books that i have and seeing if i can at least equalize it a little bit cross the he's out so Things like that. I mean, it's just so ingrained and in even children's books, it's, it's crazy. And then, you know, how to teach caution without adding panic because panic can cause anxiety. That's something I have to work on before I can teach it to her. But luckily my husband is the calm counterpart of- Because <laughs> so, so. I know you're not. <laughs> I'm not. 
If you know me, you know it. <laughs> I know. I remember 18, 19 year old Leica. There was no <laughs> calmness there. There no chill. I have none. I've never had any. Big ball of anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> I learned what that term was from being your friend. <laughs> but hey, I can fake calm when I need to. Yeah. But it is fake. Um, I mean, but I'm sure you're calm when you do. You're calm and confident in your work. Because obviously. It's the only time. So I think yeah. one of the few times there's complete clarity and calm. You throw yourself into your work? Is that how you process emotions? Yeah. When I'm there, I'm, that's all there is. For those two weeks I'm in the ICU, it's, it's all about my patients. Um, so that's something I'll learn to balance in the years to come, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, how to let it go once you come home, you know? And in your position, um, you're probably focusing on building a team to handle the infrastructure so you can make those two week bouts and you know turn off the um anxiety mind yeah once i come home what does your team look like um right now i'm not on service which is why i'm able to talk to you i'm gonna milk this for as much as i can <laughs> <laughs> yeah man this is uh this is my off day so you're talking about my team of doctors and students. Yeah, and like with the team you're building, like what is a like a team? Um, Dr. Deer team. Last time I was on recently, it was it was, it was such a good mix. Um, actually, mostly women. I feel I think there was one dude, which I love. Um, I just we were so efficient. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you have a group say. chat with you have a group chat with all the women except that one guy. <laughs> <laughs> at the risk of maligning the one guy who was great but um that's good yeah just uh, just all women doctor team taking efficient care of our patients it was wonderful and so um, when you set up your staff how are you what is your strategy with that i have no control over what my team looks like um they're assigned because it's an academic center okay. um, each like you know they have their own um, supervisors and stuff and they're assigned these rotations and if they're assigned to me, that's by random chance. And we just have to work together. Um, and which is an art in itself. Yeah. Because you have to wield authority. Yeah. And, you and, know. Um, you don't look like, like, you don't look, like you look, yeah, like my sister gets this a lot. Yeah. Where they're just like, are you sure you're a doctor? All the time. Like, all the time are you sure are you are you like the intern <laughs> yeah so all it's the time, like yeah. maybe you can shed some light on this actually um so for for women in high-powered careers or professions right having to uh exert authority just so they can get the regular work done right because i'm sure that there's a secondary battle of your authority being questioned before like the literal brass tacks of whatever to-do list that needs to get done is done, right? So how often do you deal with the, the questioning of your authority when you need to get something done? And what do you, how do you, how do you cope or how yeah, do you? No, you know, a lot of times it's, it's pervasive in medicine. So yeah, I'm also 4'11", which doesn't help matters. Um, so That's not a good, that's her height. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, how, that's how tall I am. Can't tell on you. But um, I'm, I'm short, I'm a woman, you know, and then very commonly in our field and in every field, 
especially with minorities, this is imposter syndrome. So there's this background of imposter syndrome where you yourself don't have confidence. Um, and then there's everyone who's perceiving you as young and inexperienced when you're the leader of the medical team in a pandemic in the ICU, where your word should really be <laughs> matter because it, it matters to deliver efficient patient care. Yeah. And shit is crazy in the ICU. So when you say something and it's questioned whether or not consciously by the person who's questioning me, it just, it just adds this extra stress. I can't explain it. You know, I can't just worry about this patient who's dying. I have to worry about making myself be projected in a confident manner. So someone will listen to me. Yeah. Um, so yeah. so what are your, what are your tools for flexing nuts? Yeah. For example, um, if there's a code blue, a code blue is when someone's heart stops and you're going to go do, you know, CPR, like in the movies. Um, and you walk in and it's a crazy room and people are already doing chest compressions and you're the code blue leader. You walk in and you're dwarfed by the crowd in the room. No one's listening to you. And it's the most important time for that patient to have a leader in the room. I literally have to get a stool, stand on it and project my voice and shout. And one of the first things I do is clear the room of just unnecessary people who are just standing there like, you know, Damn. bystanders. You know how when there's a car crash and people just slow down for no yeah. reason other than to watch. And the bystander effect where it's like yeah. you have to look at someone specifically and say, call you, call 911, as opposed to exactly. call 911. Yeah, there's also this morbid fascination. Oh, there's a car crash. Let me see if, you know, what's going on there. And there's just people just standing in the room. So I clear the room. If you're not helping with this code, please leave. And I shout and I may be perceived as an asshole or be called a bitch under their breath where I can hear them um, has happened, but you do it. <laughs> you do and it. you collect their heads afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, but you know, it just takes time to build these relationships and uh, be taken seriously. And it won't happen right away. There's a rite of passage in medicine. And I have to go through it like every other woman does. Okay, so I'm debating right now on whether or not the earth is round or is flat. So should I take the vaccine? Yes. <laughs> Tell yeah. me about the vaccine. Can you put the, can you dispel some fears about it for people that may listen? Yeah, so, you know, I'm not going to go into the studies that um, did this. Better people than I already performed as it. A, as, a, yeah. as an authoritative yeah. and experienced and young, hip, cool physician. I'm so young and hip. Um, yeah, okay, yeah, so speak just, to the camera. Let's, let's, let's hear I'm, it. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm a palm crit care doctor. I've seen some crazy amount of death. I just took my second vaccine. I'm still here. No one cares enough about you to track you through a secret microchip system, this vaccine. Just take it. You know, you took your other vaccines. This is no different. We know that most adverse effects from vaccines happen in the first, whatever, weeks, months, and we're past that. Uh, we're past that. It's safe. It's safe. It has a remarkable efficacy, 90 to 95%, whatever, depending on the vaccine you take, Moderna or Pfizer. But take it, man. Um, what are you afraid of? Like, what are you afraid of? You know, what questions could you have that I can answer specifically? But Okay. Okay. Fine. Let me, let me play the role here. So what the government is, uh, has been lying to me for the last few years. How do I know they're not lying to me now? 
so this this vaccine was developed by scientists who have no governmental right you know ties or incentive there i mean these are remarkable minds that have developed a vaccine to save lives or at least make the disease less of a burden on your economy on your families i mean this pandemic has destroyed this country in a almost irreversible way in a lot of ways i think it's going to take a long time so yeah don't trust the government but it's it's a vaccine that was developed by scientists scientists are not government officials as much as you want to think um i can just tell you in in a simple way that i would do this over and over i mean i've seen so much devastation from this virus do your part you know you're an adult you don't want to take the vaccine you're not going to do it but if you if you want to listen to doctors people who are seeing this and taking care of this every day just listen if you listen to them for other illnesses you go to them for something else to get your medications and your prescriptions then what's the difference you trust us for those things trust us for this um and you know like i said the first shot was completely painless the second shot my arm was sore i'm here and i'm fully vaccinated i'm so thrilled so do you have a do you have a wicked uh, vaccine scar oh you probably have one from when you're nine yeah from uh, from our bcg vaccine yeah do you, got, like, do you have one for the covid vaccine so you got like two <laughs> i don't think the covid vaccine gives a scar oh man okay it's still a little sore, but um, maybe it'll turn into a cool scar. Then I'll always remember this. Go over the Not that I could forget. Okay. La uh, last part of me playing that role in the vaccine stuff. So historically, my population has been lied to by the government and we've been experimented with. How do I know I'll be getting the actual vaccine? How do I know I'm getting the same thing that Ted Cruz is going to get? <laughs> Oh, this is such an important topic, um, especially in the black community where the, the mistrust for medical professionals is, is through the roof and for a good reason. And for a good reason, yeah. Such good reason. Um, so I guess you don't, but I also want to say that, you know, specifically the black Americans are more likely to contract COVID, more likely to be hospitalized for it and more likely to die due to COVID than anyone else in this country due to socioeconomic factors, access to healthcare, health disparities, so many things that they experience, which they shouldn't experience, but more the reason that they need to be vaccinated, uh, marginalized communities need to be vaccinated because of their access to healthcare, because there's this bias where we don't take your illness as seriously as another person's illness it's a big battle between trusting and doing what you can to save your community. And I don't know what the right answer is there, but oh man, I wish I could. There's so many of my patients I've already spoken to who don't trust the vaccine, who are scared to take it. And I'm struggling with how to, how to talk them through it um, myself, but I completely get why they feel that way though. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say on it either. I just know that like, you know, my operating thesis in terms of health stuff has been like, hey, you know, if the family members and friends that are doctors and health people 
are doing a thing or saying a thing, I'll trust that they know what they're talking about because I'm pretty good at sussing out when someone doesn't know what they're talking about. Yeah. You know, so, so, you know, I've seen my family, everybody be excited to get the vaccine. So I don't really entertain the, all those negative input. That's just like entertaining the thought that vaccines give you autism. Yeah. Like, yeah, they don't, you know, by the way. Um, like if I'm getting this from some influencer on Instagram sowing doubt, how do I know that this person's ability or the 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 content of the doubt that this person is sowing is just as authoritative as the medical and scientific professionals? You know, yeah. why do I see the Republican senators that deny that think the vaccine is a hoax, think the virus is a hoax, and traffic in that rhetoric? jump the line to get the vaccine yeah right wouldn't that how do you make sense of that right how do you make sense of yo there's propaganda and then there's like look at the actions of the people spreading the propaganda yeah right can this be enough to convince you that look the people that are the thought leaders of this uh dangerous doubt that causes uh, insurrections and terrorist attacks at the Capitol, they're actually going to get the vaccine and their actions are not in line with their words. So do you think their words might not be yeah. fully right? Like, Right. It's, it's, it's very complex navigating that conversation. I, you know, it's like you need to advocate for yourself. I'm gonna tell you over and over that you are marginalized, you know this, you feel it. You feel like people are lying to you and most of your life they probably were, or at least not telling you the whole truth. Um, but again, I can't, I can't stress this vaccine enough. Maybe another thing uh, off of COVID for a second, just in terms of general you as a doctor speaking to people that listen that may potentially be patients or whatever. Um, Hippocratic oath, right? There's a, there's confidentiality. Mm -hmm. So what is the sense of like, I'm sure this is an issue, right? Like, yo, I'm your physician. Tell me the whole truth about all your shit because I need it to diagnose you. So how yeah. much like, how much, in your career and your studies and everything, have you had to develop a bullshit meter for patients crafting a story and then comparing that with their test results and then playing yeah. a detective, a forensic detective, not forensic in terms of death, but forensic detective okay. to figure out what the real story is yeah, as opposed to just getting the... So what could you say, first of all, to patients about expressing the truth to you or to their physicians and why? Yeah. Can you dispel all this happens all the time? Um, yeah, you know, I don't know where I developed the bullshit meter, like you said, but it, it happens. It happens in um, some point in training, and it's not going to work on everybody. You're not going to convince everybody to trust you, yeah. and that's just something you learn to let go and lose um, in your practice. And just, it's, I just tell them I, it's not. I'm not, your treatment plan is not going to be affected by what you tell me. This is confidential. 
your chart can be protected. There are ways to make your chart inaccessible except by your permission, things like that. Um, you know, I need to know. And I'm always fully transparent in that I'm going to test you for this. Yeah. Unless you explicitly refuse, which is your right, but I'm going to test you for these toxins, these drugs, whatever it is. Um, even, you know, HIV testing is you have you know, be transparent that you're testing them for those things. And there is no stigma. There is no stigma. I'm your physician. This is literally why you're here to see me. I want to help you. All I want to do is help you. Um, and, you know, being as authentic and and empathetic as you can. And even that there's so much mistrust that patients and at some point won't. Well, yeah. And you can't, you can't knock the mistrust because you have physicians like Rand Paul. <laughs> that guy's a physician turned congressman. I keep forgetting. Probably that. always been full piece of shit. You have physicians like, uh, what was his name? Uh, fuck, what's his name? Bashir al-Assad or whatever, the, the guy who became the dictator, he was an ophthalmologist. <laughs> he was an ophthalmologist? Yeah. Was, what a random thing. The, the president is... Wait, uh, da, 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 I, I know. Commander-in-chief. No, no, hold on. Damascus. Graduated. Yeah, Medical School of Damascus University in 1988. Doctor Syrian Army, blah, blah, blah. Where is he? I'm just going to look up. Is Bashir Al-Assad an ophthalmologist? <laughs> Here we go. Top results. Bashir, uh, Bashir Al-Assad, ophthalmologist. Yep. Specializing in ophthalmology. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so the president is here, that guy. <laughs> ophthalmologist. So <laughs> doctors can cause a lot of damage. Uh, there are examples of doctors uh wielding the kind of influence and authority and general trust they get for just being, uh, you know, uh, craft operators in a negative way. So that must discolor, just like how uh, Rudy Giuliani destroys the reputation for all lawyers by being licensed. Yeah. You know, so how do you combat those ne top negative examples that take you 40 steps back in terms of needing to operate on that trust between client and physician or patient and physician, sorry. Yeah, no, being honest. I think being honest and just being upfront that these, these type of people in this field exist, they do exist. Um, and I completely understand why you don't trust healthcare providers. I am listening to your experience in the past and I'm sorry that that happened to you. If you'll allow me, I want to help you in any way I can. And, you know, it's it's called shared decision making. You know, medicine changed from being paternalistic um, yeah. to where the doctor said, this is what you need to do and you do it because I'm the doctor and you're the patient to a culture where it's more shared decision making. This is what I recommend. I trained in this for a decade or over. This is my experience and this is what I've seen. And this is what I think you know, I recommend, um, what do you think? These are the risks, these are the benefits. Taking time, I don't think people take enough time. And if you take enough time, if you have it, I think it goes a long way. Um, and it's not gonna, it happens over several visits, especially when I 
I'm counseling patients on smoking cessation, things like that. Um, building that trust. Um, it, it's a long process. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's a that's a very delicate balance that you have to figure out. You know, we talked about the going into the room and having to flex nuts. You know, your imposter syndrome, all of that, reconciling those two. But you know, on the other side of that coin, having to develop very personal and trusted relationships with your patients because you're literally trying to save them from themselves. So like, you know, where do you, where do you fit in all of this in terms of like your own personal insecurities and experiences and having to either fake that confidence, but to develop that authoritative, because how I know you, I mean, other than your, your passive aggressive shit to me, you weren't really, <laughs> you weren't really like, um, you know, yell command the attention of the room you didn't care if the eyes were on you but you know like now you have to it's not you don't care if the eyes are on you but in certain situations the eyes need to be on you because a life depends on it yeah no it's a lot of faking it it's a lot of just stuffing that imposter feeling deep deep down as far as it can go and just projecting what you wish to project so and and that it changes on the patient that i see it changes if i know you know finding common commonalities with the type of patient you're seeing and appealing to their cultural background or you see that they're wearing camo so you ask about their hunting you know you, you're you um you ignore their their thinly veiled racism towards you and you just nod when they say, aren't you glad that we let you into this country, doctor? You know, you wouldn't be a doctor if we didn't let you in. Oh, so my like, God. Seriously? Yeah, all this stuff. So you just you learn to navigate those conversations and just stuff that deep down and then you get somewhere with them. Um, aren't you glad we let you into this motherfucker? Yeah, but um, your life is in my hands, yo. You're going to say that shit to me? <laughs> like, Yeah. And, but, you know, finding empathy for that person, despite that statement is is an art and it and i'm getting there um and me me as a potential patient if i get an ailment so this is why i should find for a physician i should find a woman of color yeah right because of the paradigm shift from paternalism to empathy yeah and also um, studies have shown that women of color and women in general have better outcomes with patients and maybe it is because of empathy um whether or not it comes naturally there's this perception that women are more empathetic and nurturing and we're not all nurturing and empathetic that's a sexist piece of shit to say but um, i know women and i know that's true <laughs> <laughs> so but you learn to develop that and you learn to project that because people expect that of you yeah and um, these are skills. These are skills you learn. And maybe it could be considered manipulative, but it's what you need. Um, yeah, I mean, you really do. And, and, you know, I think about that, like, I think about my sister a lot. And uh, I mean, I feel like you two are in probably similar, but she's an ophthalmologist. And, um, you know, she's she she wields authority, has a staff and all of that. But, you know, she's always looked like a decade younger than she is. 
Yeah. So, you know, I don't talk to her much about this kind of stuff ever, but every now and then she'll like recount a story or something. And there's just like so many extra obstacles in there that I wouldn't have. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like if I put on her lab coat and went into her office and even just said jargon that <laughs> makes no sense, I really feel like people would follow my, my word way more than hers and i could go in with zero experience literally imitate how i think she acts or how i and and i feel like everyone would just hang on my words because i'm balding i'm heavy set and i'm brown and so like and i'm a man yeah so like do you think there's any truth to that oh yeah for example like when i first started this attending job um we had this one patient. We, I went in with my whole gaggle of residents and students, and my medical student was is a is, is a dude. And I went in there, and I even introduced myself. Hey, I'm the supervising doctor for this team. We're you know the lung team taking care of you. Um, we're gonna you know so and so. We were having a conversation, and every question I asked, the patient responded, but looked and responded to the male medical student, despite me standing there, having introduced myself as the leader of the team, she still deferred, she, the patient was a woman, deferred to the man in the room. She probably doesn't even know that she did that, but he was there with his short white coat, you know, and that's not just that's not the first time it won't <laughs> be the be last fair. and i'm just to like i'm fair. just standing over here like a like a decorative nothing <laughs> to in the be court. fair you could have been wearing a short coat and it looked like a long coat <laughs> <laughs> come on all right no i'm sorry i'm sorry i had to get one in i had to get one in <laughs> <laughs> that's true fair <laughs> no no but that's a the that's a subconscious bias right even yeah. if she registered the fact that you are who you are and you're presenting the authority, you're the one talking. This, this student didn't say anything? No. No. He probably didn't know what was happening. It was natural for him to receive that kind of attention. How could he know? He's been treated like that his entire life. It's true. Okay, so I just lost power. And I think we had like a long break. And I kind of forgot where we were in the conversation. I think you were talking about, we were talking about wielding authority presenting authority and especially as a like you are literally from a perception standpoint physically antithetical to what I imagine somebody wielding this big like a fat cat mob boss wielding authority is you know what I mean you are this young 411 brown girl that looks a decade younger than she is so why would I ever listen to her? What she has to say, right? Even you have bias, yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah, but I know you. I would definitely be treated by you. Uh, thank you. Even though I was an yeah. asshole in college. Yeah, no, no, and I and me questioning your authority would just be would just be me uh, for fun breaking your balls. <laughs> I wouldn't question your authority like like implicitly. I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, she prescribed this thing. Of course, I'll take it. But yeah. but like in to you, I'd be like, but why? Yeah. Why? Fair enough. <laughs> That's the right of friendship. 
But yeah. R-I-T-E, not R-I-G-H-D. Both. That's your right as my friend. That's also a right of friendship. Okay, both. That's fair. I wanted to ask you, I want to go back to the vaccine thing, just because it's such a topic, right? Yeah. You have gotten both of them, both shots. Now, a lot of people are really scared of getting it. There's a lot of like information. I don't know. I don't want to say if it's misinformation or disinformation, but it's information nonetheless uh, online about how there's negative complications from getting uh, the vaccine administered. I saw a thing like somebody having a testimonial about how her, her face was paralyzed from getting the thing. Right. And there's all like, sure, anecdotal information, but still there nonetheless and getting uh, a lot of likes and views and all this stuff. So it wields the same level of influence or even more than, you know, you uh, having years and years of experience and seeing it firsthand and uh, seeing all the trauma, seeing all the bodies. And then you get a vaccine in the world. Right. So how do you feel going in to get this shot? That that first shot, the days leading up to it, I still couldn't believe that it was here. I'm scheduled to get it. I mean, the anxiety and anticipation leading up to that was unreal. I don't know why. Um, You know, I can't put words to it, but I got that vaccine. I got there to my little cubicle. Yeah. and it was overwhelming. I felt foolish, but I was so emotional. And I was like, I'm embarrassed. Tears are streaming down my face. And I think it's because I'm happy. Yeah. I think I feel like there's this huge dam that just broke and I feel relieved. And it was just so much relief. Um, what is that relief? Is this me personally? I get, I don't have to worry about contracting this or, or I have less of a chance to contract this now. Or is it the relief of like, yo, there's been so much uncertainty. I've seen so much fucking trauma for months without any direction or any closure. And now this is finally a step. Which, what yeah. kind of relief was it? The first was, I think I can walk a little less like I'm walking on eggshells, just approaching every day because I'm that much closer to being a little bit more protected, at least selfishly for my family and my parents who are older. And then second, having seen that many cases and not having a good treatment for it, it's well known. There's no straightforward good treatment to cure this. Um, But here's a vaccine that may at least decrease the whole burden, the disease burden and less overwhelmed hospitals, less overwhelmed doctors. And nurses, I mean, it was just all of that just culminated in that moment. And I was just like, I hope, and I did have hope right then, but it's going to get better. Tell us about the garbage bags. Tell us about that time. I feel like people forget about that time. I saw pictures of it. Tell us about the garbage bag times. When I was finishing fellowship and when the pandemic raged in New Orleans and personal protective equipment, PPE, um, was a huge topic there wasn't any of it we didn't get any of it until it was a little late in the game um 
and we were assigned like one flimsy sky blue color garbage bag gown and the neck just like didn't even come up to here it was just like gaping my whole chest was exposed and it like even for being 411 it just went to my knees so my legs my shoes and then you were given that one gown for your whole icu and i mean it was laughable it was laughable you got a gown a day no matter how many patients you were seeing and um you, you came out and you wiped it down. We didn't have enough like professional cleaning wipes. So like we started getting these washcloths and soaking it in this cleaning solution. And we get that washcloth out of this soaking bucket of cleaning solution, squeeze it, wipe it down, hang it there to dry. And then you take it back and you use it for the next patient. It was gross. Oh my God. Um, like the whole medical profession is almost back to having to use leeches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Leeches were more effective, probably. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, the hospital, this is our uh, bucket and rag corner. <laughs> it was a literal bucket and a rag, and I'm like... If you want a trash bag, you can put those on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, it was unreal. It got better. We finally got some supplies diverted to New Orleans around that, you know, later. And it got better. And it's and, and PPE is, is not an issue right now where I'm practicing in Mississippi. Okay. Thankfully. Thankfully. Um, so getting that vaccine, you're super excited. I know my sister said that the person who administered her vaccine, uh, she had never seen someone more excited to get this thing. To get an injection? Right. Yeah. And to me, that's a foreign concept because of all the people I'm around and who I talk to, everyone's so scared there's never been an indication of anyone being even a little bit excited about getting it. There, we've just been so gaslit for so many years about things that it's like, so how do we reconcile those two? Me as part of the lay population, the general population, and you as part of the physician you know, population of the people that know the shit, know the stuff, right? Yeah. How do we reconcile your population being excited for getting this thing and my population being very apprehensive and scared? How do I, how do people like me get excited? Well, me, I'm excited, but like, how do people in my environment and situation get as excited as you are? Yeah, I think, I think that's a, that's a tall ask. Um, instead of getting people excited, I just at least want people to, to be open to listening. Um, yeah. Myself, I'm not a researcher. I don't know the details of this vaccine development. I can, I read the studies, but I know enough to trust people who dedicated their lives to this because I myself, I'm considered a professional in what I do. And I'm hoping the patients I take care of listen to me because I've dedicated my life to this. I've sacrificed a lot to become a physician and here I am and I just want lay people, people who don't have access to this knowledge to at least consider that we are being authentic and wanting to protect you and get this pandemic behind us. Um, I don't care if you're not excited. I want you to listen that maybe this is a reasonable piece of advice I'm giving you. And that's all. If I can start off there, then your mind is open and we can have more conversations. But Honestly, you're not going to get anybody, not everybody is going to 
be open with you. There are some people or there's just going to be a loss. Thanks for watching. Check us out at returnthejewels.com or on social media at returnthejewels. To watch more videos, you can subscribe right there or you can watch a random video right uh, here. Like, share, and subscribe. Tell all your friends.